Thank you, Jordan, for choosing all those wonderful songs and leading us in worship. kind of helps uh, to me to um, introduce uh, what I wanted to talk about. Actually, it's a bit like the Star Wars movies. The, this one was part six or four, five, and six, and what I have to say is part one, two, and three. So it uh, kind of comes before that in that sense. What I wanted to talk about uh, today was basically um, how not to do things. Uh, often when instructing someone uh, how not to do something, uh, it can be equally instructive, if not more instructive, than what to do. Uh, so um, I've put a, a list of things to illustrate my point. For example, how not to get on an escalator. It's a bit troublesome. If you ever want to get on an escalator, that's not how to do it. Next, um, how not to perform a high jump if you're ever going to the Olympics. That's not how you do it. Okay. <laughs> how not to report in a hurricane. Watch out for flying debris. How not to dance on live TV. Whoops. <laughs> It was quite funny. How not to throw a hand grenade. That's pretty important. Uh, Let's see how... Throw it right at your feet. No, that's not how to do it. Okay. How not to fake an injury. This is pretty important, actually. That's not how you do it. And lastly, uh, how not to pop a bottle of champagne. Whoa. <laughs> As you can see, um, how showing not wh- what not to do can, can be somewhat instructive uh, as showing what to do. And simply because the, the consequences are painful. When you do the wrong, when you do something the wrong way, it will be very funny to those who are around, like us, who watch the onlookers. But for you, it will be quite painful, or at the very least, you end up looking quite stupid. So I'd like to apply this technique of how not to to the subject of how not to think. If you've been born again. How not to think if you've been born again. So far in our series on what Christians pursue, uh, we've been looking at the attitudes and behaviors that characterize, that are characteristic of born again believers. Uh, It's been a sort of how to or a what to do sort of guide as to how to live the Christian life. And because we've already been through so many how-tos, I thought today we might do a how-not-to. And it's a follow-on from the last time when we were talking about renewal of mind, and we talked about, uh, we looked at Ephesians uh, chapter 4. And we saw that the, pursue, uh, the, the renewal of mind is a natural pursuit for those who have been born again, because to be born again means that you have a new mind. So to be born again implies that you think anew. 
It's a huge topic and I could not even begin to scratch the surface the last time. So this time I hope to scratch the surface by considering eight principles of how not to be, how not to think if you've been born again. And we'll attempt to learn these principles from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. I'm sure there are many more principles that you could infer from this passage. But I do believe that these principles that I've got for you are fundamental. Uh, lots more could, be, could come out of them. But um, what I think is important is that what we see here is how you get from total innocence to total depravity in a very short time. And I think there's lots that we can hear from that, or we can learn from that. So if you have Genesis 3, 1 to 7 open in your Bibles, I ask that you give the reading of God's word your prayerful attention, because this is the word of God. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he, being the serpent, he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Verse 4, You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now before, you, before we begin, you might say, you know, it doesn't make sense to me that we are talking about learning principles of how not to think like a born-again believer from people who were not born again. Adam and Eve weren't born again. So, what's the similarity between them and us? What can we learn if they weren't born again? And the similarity, it's a good question, but the similarity is this, that we know that God's plan of redemption is to restore fallen humanity to the original state that he created it in. So, God's plan is to restore all believers to that original state, which means restoring our minds to that state of mind that existed in the garden before sin came into the world. And so I'd like to, to examine perhaps how the, the new mind, whether it was in the garden or whether it's in us, whether the, how the new mind can be tempted to fall. It's really important because Adam and Eve were good. They had a new mind and yet they fell. You and I have a new mind and we too can fall. So what can we learn from this passage? Now, you already know the passage, so I don't have to give you a very detailed background, of course. The characters are the first human beings uh, who have been created good. Uh, the third character is uh, the most resplendent angelic being ever created, Satan himself. And the man and the woman at this point, 
are uncorrupted, they are good, but scripture tells us but that by now, Satan has already fallen. He has been expelled from heaven because he has rebelled against God, and so at this point you have sin already in the universe. Man and woman are not corrupted, they are good. But there's a contrast between good man and woman and a fallen angelic being. So right out here we have this contrast about what is good and what is fallen. And that's what we want to identify. We want to identify fallen thinking so that we don't fall into that trap of fallen thinking. As redeemed, born-again believers, that is not how we want to think. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. This passage, hopefully, will show us what his schemes are. So let's get into it. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Who's speaking? Satan. What is he saying? He's pretending to examine the word of God. Did God really say? But it's a, it's a false examination. It's a pretense of an examination because the question is framed in a lie. Here's what God actually said, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. God says, from any tree you may eat freely except one. But Satan asked, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? Do you, do you spot the difference? Do you spot the lie? Satan is presenting God's benevolence and generosity as unfairness and oppression. Why is he doing this? Because he wants to create doubt about the character of God. Why does he want to create doubt about the character of God? Because once you start doubting the character of God, you start doubting the word of God. And when you start doubting the word of God, then Satan is free to plug in his lies. So that's his strategy. It's the oldest trick in the book. I mean, uh, politicians do it all the time, right? You just malign someone's character, character assassinate, mudsling, and gosh, you, you're not going to listen to that person anymore, regardless of whether it's true or not. So the easiest way to, to defame someone is attack their character, because attacking their character is the shortest distance to shutting them up so that no one ever listens to them again. And that's Satan's lie. Simple, but massively effective. So the first step is to get people to doubt the character of God, and how does he do that? How does he achieve this with Eve? He gets her to start doubting the goodness of God. And this brings us to our first principle of how not to think if you've been born again. is to think that God is withholding good things from you. We need to stop thinking that God is withholding good from us. Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Up to that point... 
uh, Eve has only ever experienced the goodness of God. Up to this point, she has a personal relationship with God. She knows who he is. He comes and talks to both her and her husband in the cool of the day in the garden. She only has ever experienced God as a good God. And it's the same with every believer. We have no reason to even consider the idea that God may not be good. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Ephesians 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you ever doubt the goodness of God in your life? I know I do. Circumstances come across and hardships and troubles and discomfort and I start to wonder, does God really love me? If, if He loved me, would, would I be in this situation? If He's a good God, why do I hurt so much? If you're ever in that place, read Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And that refrain continues on every verse in the psalm. For his loving kindness is everlasting. 1 John 1.5 God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is good not because he strives to be good. Not because he's trying to be the good guy. But because he is goodness in his very essence. He is goodness through and through. Today's vernacular, he'd say, we'd say he's all good. The goodness of God, because it is his very nature, is the essence of reality. So if you question the goodness of God, you are butting your head up against what is real. Ultimately. It is also to accuse God of creating boundaries that sort of infringe upon our pleasure. And that's the second principle of how not to think, if you've been born again. Stop thinking that God is somehow a killjoy. Have you ever been there in your mind? Man, I, I wish I didn't have to obey all these rules and regulations and oh my gosh... I have so much more fun if God just cut me a little slack. How much more liberating would it be if God wasn't such a killjoy? And that's the third idea that we should actively stop is to think that God is somehow curbing our freedom. And I mention both of these together because God sets boundaries on our pleasure and God sets boundaries on our freedom are two ideas that sort of go together because our culture is really big on this. Freedom is normally associated with happiness, right? To, to be free is to be happy. And if you define happiness as the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence, then any restriction on freedom 
is going to be seen as the restriction on pleasure. If I stop your pleasure, then you are going to say, Hey man, I want to be free. Stop beating up on me. I want to be free. That's the resounding cry that we hear. But God is not a cosmic killjoy who is trying to rain on our picnic and get some sort of kick out of imposing unreasonable demands on us. John 10.10, Jesus makes it very clear. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Then again in John 15.11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. God's not, he's not, a, he's not skinting on goodness and joy and freedom. He wants you to have it abundantly in its fullness. How, how might we enjoy that fullness? By a relationship with Him. You tell me, could there be anything better than to be related to someone who is eternal? To someone who is essentially good? To someone who is all-powerful? To someone who is all-knowing? To someone who at the very core of His being is love? Could there be any greater pleasure than knowing such a person? Is God against freedom? John 8, 31 and 32. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. What's the big deal about that? And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Understand that God, God wants us to be free. He created us free. First, become a true disciple and freedom will follow. Oh, you mean uh, I need to submit in order to be free? That sounds like enslavement. No, no. People are enslaved primarily not by governments and dictators and political tyrants. People are enslaved by lies. And how will the truth liberate you? The truth will liberate you because it is not a force, it is not a power, it is a person. The truth is the man Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth and the life. Only truth can liberate. And to believe that there is any other way aside from this Christ is a lie. And it comes from Satan himself. But time and time again we are told we must be open-minded. Don't be so narrow. Don't be so bigoted. Just stop thinking. Just, just go with the flow. Free your mind and the rest will follow. That was the song when I was growing up. Anytime you hear someone say that, just run in the opposite direction. Because they, they just want to empty your mind so that they can fill it in with their junk. Don't fall for that. But Eve did. Verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees. We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Principle number four about how not to think if you've been born again. Stop thinking that it's okay to have a dialogue with sin. 
Eve is, like we said, she has only ever experienced God's goodness up till now. And now she is confronted by someone who is challenging that says, is God really good? So, I mean, aside from the fact that it was a serpent who was talking, there was some alarm bells should have been going off in her head that, hang on, this accusation does not match my experience. She may not have known that this was Satan, and she may not have known that, you know, he was the enemy. Granted. But when someone comes and confronts you with a a supposed reality that has not been your experience, are you just going to buy it? I mean, if she wanted to say, okay, you know, um, I hear your point, but that's not been my experience. God is good. I know him. I have a personal relationship with him. Who are you? How, How come you're telling me all this stuff that doesn't match what I know so far? I mean, that's a conversation worth having. That's a dialogue worth having. But she didn't have that. She just sort of um, went along. There's no confrontation to Satan's lie. Now, how many times has that happened in our lives? Oh, I see, you know, this temptation comes along. I say, oh, that's interesting. And my conscience says, no, stop, move on. That's wrong. That's sin. No, I'm saying, no, hang on, hang on. Let's, let's, let's see what this is all about. And look, my conscience says, no, no, stop it. That's sin. That's sin. Move on. And, and I'm saying, no, I, I want to see this. I'm, I'm just thinking about it. I'm not doing anything. So I'm actually telling my conscience to shut up while I investigate sin when the job of my conscience is actually to alert me. My conscience is a red flag saying, stop. If I, warn, if I ignore those warnings as a, as a believer, then I'm ignoring the very system that God has put in place in my mind to alert me and keep me safe. So here's the problem. When I start doubting the character of God, and when I start doubting His Word, then I start having a dialogue with sin, that's when you can be sure that you will ex- that you can expect an assault on the word of God. Verses 4 and 5. You will not surely die. Come on. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What starts off as an innocent question, has God said, turns out into a full frontal assault on the, on, the, on the character of God, you will not surely die. God's a liar. When you doubt the character of God and you doubt the word of God and you start to open yourself to a dialogue with sin, Satan is free to replace God's truth with lies. So here's principle number five. Stop thinking that you know better than God. Someone might, might say, who in their right mind, who in their right mind would think that they know better than God? I mean, is that even possible? Yes. Yes, very easy. It starts when you start doubting the character of God. It starts when you start experimenting with the idea that perhaps He's not good. 
And you start toying with the idea that maybe there's something really off with his word. If I doubt your character, then I'm going to doubt your word. And if I doubt your word, then I'm going to say, hey, I know better than you do. And if I say, hey, I know better than you do, then it won't be long before I start saying, hey, man, you're a liar. You don't really know what you're talking about. And that's what Satan wants to do at the end of the day, isn't it? God's a liar. He's putting curbs on your freedom. He's putting boundaries on you. He's withholding good from you. He doesn't love you. He's a liar. The whole world, the whole world has bought into this deception. As believers, we wouldn't dream of thinking, we wouldn't dream of thinking that, you know, we know better than God, but it's so easy when we, when, when we give in to doubt. It's not wrong to doubt. I'm not saying we shouldn't have doubts. Doubts are normal. We're human. We have a finite understanding. Things will creep in and we, we do have doubts. But when we let doubts go unchallenged, when we start to accept those doubts as truth, we have a problem. Because we are implying that we know more than God. And when we start to say that we know more than God, then we will start to replace what we know with what He has told us. We start to change the definition of sin. We start to change the consequences of sin. We start to dabble a bit. And then one day we wake up and our whole life is a mess and we wonder, how do we get here? We ended up in a mess because we thought we knew better than God about the consequences of sin. You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Principle number six about how not to think if you've been born again. Stop thinking that you can be like God. And you may say, come on, I'm not going to think like that. I know I'm a human being. But this is Satan's own sin. He wanted to be like God. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. God says, but you said in your heart, you, Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself as the most high. That's Satan's sin. That's the first sin. The most stunning, the most beautiful, the most wise and talented creature in the universe makes the stupidest decision to think that he can take God on. He rebels against the, the throne of authority. He refuses to accept God as his authority. He thinks that he can now somehow overthrow God who created him. Are you stupid or what? But that's, that's how powerful sin is. That is how powerful pride is. Don't think that you're messing with something that is in your control. If you are not saved, this is beyond your ability to handle. Sin creates the, the illusion that evil is actually a virtue. 
that God is somehow a weakling. He doesn't know what he's doing. And that you are the master of your own destiny. How many times have you heard that? Eve bought into that deception. But this is what amazes me. She was already like God. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Genesis 5, 1 and 2. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. She was like God. She was the product of the Trinity's decision to replicate their image in another creature. She and her husband had dominion, power, rulership of the entire planet. They were at the very pinnacle of God's creation, but that wasn't enough, was it? She wanted a different set of equality. And that equality doesn't just mean I'm equal. It means I want to take your place. I think it was George Orwell in his book Animal Farm who said talking about animals as human beings all animals are created equal some more equal than others some get preferences and I think it starts here when you try to be equal but in the name of equality you are actually seeking displacement consider Jesus on the other hand who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Isn't that the story of redemption? Men, God, God takes on, God condescends to take on human flesh. We've been singing about it all throughout this day, this morning. God condescends to take on human flesh and the reason is because man wanted to ascend and take on the place of God. And that's the sin. It's not the eating of the fruit. You know, I, I used to grow, when I was growing up, I said, you know, it's just an apple. Thinking it was the apple. Why? Why such a big penalty? Just for a small act of disobedience, because it's not a small act of disobedience. Listen to what H.C. Leupold, um, uh, a commentator in his exposition of Genesis, this is what he says. We strongly maintain, I quote, we strongly maintain that the taking of the fruit was not the fall into sin. The taking of the fruit was not the fall into sin. That fall had occurred before this act. The taking of the fruit was an incidental bit of evidence of the fact that man had already fallen. However, the fall as such was nothing less in character than an entirely inexcusable piece of rebellion against a very gracious father who not only had withheld nothing good from man, but had even bestowed such an overwhelming wealth of good things that revolt against such a one must be in the very nature of the case be a sin of the deepest hue. Yes, 
even the one great sin in the history of the human race. Unquote. Are you wanting to be like God? Are you wanting to take the decisions in your life that are reserved for His? Are you discontented with what He has given you? And the way He has made you? Or are you thankful for being made in His image? Or is there something more somehow that you're after? Don't think that just because you're a believer, you're exempt from this temptation because that sometimes that you, I'm not going to fall for this tactic. I'm not going to think like I'm God. No. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around you like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith. But that's not what Eve did. She didn't resist. She gave in. We look at the last two verses, verses 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The sin was already committed in the mind, the body now was simply carrying out the desires of the mind. And so we come to principle number seven about how not to think if you've been born again. Don't think that your own wisdom and feelings somehow negate the word of God. Don't think for a moment that just because you are a child of God, that therefore... God's word has ceased to have any sort of relevance in your mind because now you're free to cruise based on your own feelings and on, on your own emotions. I say this today because there is a sizable population within the evangelical community who love to say that they are saved. They love the free grace of God. They love to come to church and sing and put their hands up and Pray and all of that. Nothing wrong with putting your hands up. That's fine. But they like all the Facebook posts and the Twitter posts and very vocal in social media about being born again and all of that. But they somehow don't bring their minds into an alignment with their identity. There's a lot of talk. But there's no, but some of the, there seems to be a, a, a mismatch. Something's not right. Because the thinking is still the same old thinking. There seems actually to be a resistance to change. Jesus loves me just as I am. Why do I need to change? But is that what the Word of God says? Romans 6 4. Walk in newness. Of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 You are a new creature because the old has passed away. Ephesians 4.24 Put on the new man. New life. New creature. New man. Old way of thinking. God activates a new mind in us when he saves us and it's up to us to cultivate that new mind. He activates. 
we cultivate. We don't cultivate based on our feelings and emotions. We cultivate on the basis of His Word. The new mind does not neglect the Word, rather it lives by the Word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Not just some of the words. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But by this point, Eve has neglected the word. She's forgotten about the word. Therefore, when she saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, God's command went out of the window. She was trusting more in her wisdom than in the wisdom of God. She was focused on more, more on what she saw instead of being focused on what God said. And that's the sort of thinking we need to avoid. There's nothing, there was nothing sinful in the fruit. It may have been very good for food. It may have been very pleasing to the eye. It may even have been desirable for gaining wisdom, but that's beside the point, because God said, don't eat it. God didn't say, if it's bad, then don't eat it. God didn't say, if it doesn't look good, then don't eat it. God said, don't eat it. How many times have we been led astray by our eyes, by our eyes in our emotions, in our feelings, in our wisdom? As born again believers, we cannot let them overrule the word of God in our lives. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And so we come to the eighth and the last principle about how not to think. If you've been born again, stop using the behavior of other believers to inform your theology. Why do I say this? Eve sinned because she was, because she was deceived. I, I've only been talking about Eve so far. I'm not trying to have a go, with her, a go at her. I'm not being misogynistic or sexist. That's what the text says. But now we come to Adam. She took and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. And he ate it. Eve was deceived. Someone messed with her head and she was deceived. But Adam ate out of full-blown rebellion. There was no one messing with his head. There was no one trying to tempt him. There was no one trying to argue and make him doubt the character of God. He did that all by himself. He thought, hey, my wife's eating it. What's the problem? Scripture doesn't give us any indication that he said, hang on, can we think about this? You know, or there was no confrontation that she did the wrong thing. There was no confrontation that she had disobeyed. He just ate it. We like that sometimes, aren't we? We tolerate the sins of other believers. We just let them slide. They are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Why judge? It's almost as if we will use any excuse to sort of explain away the sinful habits and lifestyles of other believers. How did Peter deal with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied about the offering? How did Paul 
deal with Peter when Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. So we may not be like Adam who followed after Eve when she sinned. So it's not as if we look at someone else and we start doing what they do. But we can take the attitude that if, if, a, if a Christian is doing something that the Lord says is wrong, then maybe it's not wrong. I mean, I, I, this person that I love so much, surely, surely uh, they can't be wrong. Perhaps it's, it's my fault that I've misunderstood God's word somehow. You know, I'm trying to, maybe you know, this person can't be wrong. This person is my son, or this person is my wife, or this person is my brother. So we start to now compromise the word of God. We see this quite frequently with pastors coming out in support of gay marriage. Because their children identify as gay. I'd like to read to you some of the words of a pastor on the website patheos.com. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, so bear with me, but pay close attention to see how what I've been talking about perhaps is reflected in these words. My name is Danny Cortez, I quote, My name is Danny Cortez, and I pastor a small Southern Baptist church in La Mirada, California. I recently became gay-affirming after a 15-year journey of having multiple people in my congregation come out to me every year. It was especially the testimony, not of God, but of my gay friends, that helped me to see how they have been marginalized, that my eyes became open to the injustice that the church has wrought. In August of 2013, on a sunny day at the beach, I realized I no longer believed in the traditional teachings regarding homosexuality. As I was trying to figure out what to tell my church, I was driving in the car with my 15-year-old son, Drew, when a song on the radio came on. I asked Drew who sang it, and he said, Macklemore. I don't know how many of you have heard that song. It's a very powerful song. It talks about the injustice that's being perpetrated against same-sex couples. So I continue, I quote, And then he asked me why I was interested in it, and I told him that I liked the song. He was startled, and he asked me if I knew that the song's message was gay-affirming. And I told him that I did know, and that's why I like the song. I also told him that I no longer believed what I used to believe. As we got out of the car, I could tell he was puzzled. So I asked him what he was thinking, and in the parking lot, he told me in a nervous voice, Dad, I'm gay. My heart skipped a beat, and I turned towards him, and we gave one, gave one another the biggest and longest hug as we cried. And all I could tell him was that I loved him so much, and that I accepted him. Just as he is. I then told my church on Feb 9 about my new position. However, I expressed that my goal wasn't about trying to convince everyone what I believe, but that we should allow room for grace in the midst of disagreement. Unfortunately, many weren't pleased, praise the Lord. So the church had to vote whether to terminate me or to accept my proposition. 
the church voted instead to prolong the period of prayer, study and discernment. We then invited teachers, both gay and straight, from both sides of the debate to speak to our church. You're a shepherd. You don't invite wolves into your flock. But I continue. The church just voted two Sundays ago on May 18th, 2014. It's not long ago. The church voted two Sundays ago not to not dismiss me and to instead become a third way church, which means to agree, to disagree, and not cast judgment on one another. This is a huge step for a Southern Baptist church. So now, we will accept the LGBT community, even though they may be in a relationship. We will choose to remain the body of Christ and not cast judgment. We will work towards graceful dialogue in the midst of theological differences. We see that this is possible in the same way that our church holds different issues on the different positions on the issue of divorce and remarriage. In this issue, we are able to not cast judgment in our disagreement. End quote. Really, are you going to be the body of Christ? By allowing what Christ act actively has labeled as sin? And you're going to say that this is love? And this is a, a graceful way to agree? When our own family members sin, that's hard. I, I can understand that. I, I, I can't even begin to understand how it must have been for this pastor to learn that his son was gay. I, I, I cannot comprehend the feelings and the range of emotions that must have gone through his head. But, to allow their behavior to inform his own theology, that is not just a tragedy, that is a travesty. It is criminal. It is sacrilege. That's the sin of Adam. When he allows someone else's behavior to inform his own life. As we close, I must admit that I was, I was as I was preparing, uh, you know, a, a niggling thought kept running through my head about, you know, everyone knows this. It's old hat. It's stale news. But as I look around at Christianity today caving to same-sex marriage, as I see Christians resigning from positions of leadership in the church because their names have been found on a website that promotes adultery, as I see more and more Christians preaching love and tolerance to what the early church would not tolerate, as I see doctrine after doctrine being compromised, I am convinced that we need these truths now more than ever. But it's not just what I see outside. As I see my own mind assaulted by sinful thoughts on a daily basis, 
I am convinced that I need my mind to be transformed. And it cannot be transformed with how I think or what I feel. It can only be transformed by God's word. I need constant reminding that I can't, lead, I can't let my guard down for even the slightest moment. I need to know how to think. It all starts with a, a small little thing. You question the goodness of God. You start doubting the word of God. You start thinking you can be like God and you know better than God. And you think, oh, he's just putting so many boundaries on me. And before you know it, you've drifted so far away. I need to know how not to think if I'm born again. Because I need to actively reject that sort of thinking. Why? Because eternity is at stake. The image of God is at stake. And the testimony of His bride is at stake. When we let down our guard... What once seemed to be unthinkable. Who's going to, who, how did we ever come to this place? Uh, that's never going to happen. No, no. Hang on. You have no idea how quickly you can slide down that slippery slope. You have no idea how quickly you can go past the point of no return. When you start to question the goodness of God. There is no innocence in the questions of Satan when those doubts come in your mind, be aware, be very aware. So having seen how not to think, how should we as Christians think? And I'd like you to turn lastly to the book of Second Corinthians chapter 10. Jeff's going to be preaching from this in a few weeks, well, a while actually, but... 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 5. How are we to think as born-again believers? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Why? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And he's talking about fortresses in the mind. Mental strongholds. We are destroying speculations, thoughts, stuff that happens in the mind. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. May that be our constant endeavor. That we take every thought doesn't matter whether I'm saying it. doesn't matter who's saying it. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Shall we pray?
Our gracious God and loving Father, we just want to thank you that you are a generous God. We want to thank you that you are a good God. We want to thank you, Lord, that you are a merciful and gracious God. And Lord, we want to seek forgiveness for the times when we have questioned and doubted your goodness in our lives. And Father, we want to seek forgiveness for the times when we have allowed those questions and doubts to remain. When we have not challenged and doubted our own doubts. Father God, we just want to pray that you would renew our minds and renew our thinking. Lord, having identified how we ought not to think, we just pray, Lord, that you would help us now to identify these patterns whenever they surface in our own minds so that we can reject them outright because that's not how you created us to think. Father, we want to be pure in our minds first. Lord, because our minds are an open book before you, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And so, Lord, we want our minds and we want to offer our minds to you as as a living sacrifice. Where your will would be done. Where your will, Lord, would be achieved in the sanctification of our lives, in the conforming of our lives to your word. And Lord, then we could sing, let your kingdom come. And we ask all this in Jesus' most holy and precious name. Amen.